Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning. Uh, come on, give me a response now. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Great job. Great, great job. Uh, to our online audience, good morning. Uh, go ahead and just type it in right there so we know you're with us. But uh, it's great to be in the house of the Lord. It's great to gather with other believers, whether you're in person or whether you're joining us online. Thank you for being here and just diving into God's Word. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody in the room that gets, every week we send out a, uh, we call it a small group study guide. Uh, it looks like this. Um, as the has sermon note outline on there. Mine's actually filled out. I actually filled it out already. Um, so if anybody wants the answers ahead of time, um, it's for you. Uh, but online, if, if you don't get it, we send it out to several hundred people a week, typically on Friday. If you don't get that and you would like to get a copy of that, uh, just let us know. Uh, put it in the comments, email us, let us know. We'll make sure that we add you to that list. Uh, there's three parts to this, which is why it's kind of interesting as we're trying to resource and equip our church and as we're all trying to gather around God's word and move in the same direction. There's three parts to this. One is just kind of here's what's going on Sunday. Here's an outline of Pastor Scott's message and you can fill in some blanks, take some notes, prepare for uh, time with your small group. The second part is actually like for discussion and application. Uh, and there's usually some prompting questions right there that help you as you prepare through the week then to meet with your small group. Here's some things to talk about. Uh, then the third part is actually looking at next week. Um, and so there's a little part there that, that will say, hey, in preparation for next Sunday, uh, begin to read this passage and begin to unpack it for yourself um, so that you're spending time in God's Word. I get a thumbs up from Penny over there. Great job. Um, and so, you know, for next week, we'll, we'll be looking at um, Luke chapter 10. Uh, so it gives you some, some questions, and as you're reading that each day, just a little passage of Scripture, there's some things to look for. What is God going to teach you from God's Word? And then Pastor Scott will unpack that next week, and it will just sort of expand your knowledge and understanding and, and even help you better understand how to study God's Word on your own. So, so that's available. Uh, we'd love to make sure you have that. So let us know, either email or right now at the top of the website. You can actually just go there, click the link, and download that each and every week, free of charge. Um, it's great to be together, isn't it? Love is. Uh, worship team, thanks for just leading us to the throne of grace, talking about God's love and his goodness, just reminding us of who he is, his names, his character. Um, it's, it's great. So as we're continuing this series on love is, you see the big letters behind me here. Uh, let me just ask, how would you finish that phrase? Love is. Think of a word or maybe a couple of words. Love is What? Love is serving. That's great. Online, you can type some things in there, some people interacting with you too, but I'd love to know your, your response. Love is what? How do we answer that? Patience. Love is patient, I heard. What? Humble and kind. Humble and kind. Thank you, James. Who else? Wonderful. Love is wonderful. Oh, love is a many-splendored thing. Um, uh, you know, there's so many ways that we can answer that question. Uh, if you're a classic rock guy, uh, you might be thinking, Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. Uh, I don't know. Uh, DC Talk came out a number of years ago with love is a verb. I was going to do a rap version of that for you this morning. I will save you the turmoil uh, and pain of, of watching and listening to that. Um, we could say that love is messy. Love is difficult. Love is complex. Uh, any tennis players in the house? Three, okay. Um, 
volley amongst yourselves. But uh, love is a score in tennis, right? It's a score of zero. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of things that we can do. Love is a sacrifice. Love is blind. Love is accepting. In this day and age, love is tolerant. Well, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that and how unbiblical that is. We'll touch base on it just a little bit. Um, but there's so many things. Let's agree this morning that love can be confusing. Amen? Love can really be confusing. And I jumped into the dictionary um, and, and looked at Merriam-Webster, and I simply looked up love. And love is a noun and a verb. So there are nine variations of the description and definition of love as a noun. As a verb, there's four different variations of that. Well, if that doesn't tell you that it can be a little tough to unpack, I'm not sure what will. Um, but in the English language especially, because it's not as detailed as the Greek that the New Testament was written in, uh, it's real easy for us to confuse love. Uh, because I will stand before you and say, I deeply love Jesus with all my heart. Uh, but I will also tell you that I love tacos, and I love hockey, and I love my wife, and I love snow and cold weather. Um, but that can be a little bit confusing, can it? How can I love all those things, and is it the same kind of love? Interesting because God actually uses love as part of a description of who he is. First John 4, God is love. And what we discover in God's word, he doesn't simply demonstrate love, he is love. And so biblical love is both emotional and affectional, but it's also actions. Can you have actions without emotions? Yes, you can. But biblical love, when we look at it, it's, it's possible to have this sacrificial actions and have a lack of love. But it's not possible to love without action. It's more than simply sentiment or feelings, but it's also not simply actions. And so we have a tendency to simplify it when it's yet very complex. So just love God, love people. Well, what does that really mean? And so to get an accurate biblical perspective, we have to accurately and biblically define what love is. So how can we have a series entitled Love Is without diving into probably the most well-known love chapter in the Bible, often referred to simply as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, and I trust you do, turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And while you're going there, let me just set this up a little bit because we are really kind of taking off on Pastor Scott's message from last week. Uh, two weeks ago, just talked about God's incredible love out of Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then last week, we looked at, at the two primary commandments that Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And his last point of, of his outline last week is that God displays an all-encompassing love through us to other people. And so we want to unpack that a little bit. What does it really mean to display God's love through us to other people? And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And he didn't write the chapters. Those came later. Uh, easier for us to study. But in the midst of his chapter, he spends a pretty lengthy portion talking about spiritual gifts and how those are being used and abused in the church. And so really from chapter 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. 
Chapter 12 is all about how those, those spiritual gifts are received and how they are, are intermingled in use within the church. Chapter 14 is really kind of helping us understand the purpose and the appropriation of those gifts. Chapter 13 is where we really see the proper use, the proper attitude, the proper motive, and the proper power for which those gifts are utilized. And what we discover is that there's no love in the church. He tells us in chapter 1 that, that, that the spiritual gifts were present in the church. And in, in chapter 11, he, he tells us as he's teaching and, and writing to the church that, that for the most part, your doctrine is pretty good. So they have right doctrine, they have the gifts, but love was absent. It seems to be a historical problem in the life of the church. We can be active and we can even have good and right thinking in theology and yet love not be present. So it is continually a challenge in the life of believers. No wonder our world is confused when we talk about the love and grace of Jesus when they don't see it demonstrated properly in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes and he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, a lot of times when we talk about defining love, a lot of people will go to 1 Corinthians 13 and say, well, this is a definition of love. And I'll say, well, no, it's not. As a matter of fact, for several years in weddings, as I'm interacting with a couple, and they go, oh, we want this scripture. And I'm like, that's great. And I will usually say something like this. When, when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, he's telling us what love looks like when it's lived out in human relationships. There was a problem in the church. So he's not defining love. He's saying, look, church, if you're going to love one another, here's what this looks like when it's lived out in human relationships. So how do you really define love? Where does the Bible define love? Several years ago, a friend of mine shared this principle, and so I want you to keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 13, but move forward to the book of Ephesians, another one of Paul's letters to a church, and in Ephesians chapter 5 is the only place I've discovered in Scripture that actually gives us a biblical definition of love. In Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul is writing, he simply says this in verse 25. And again, he's talking about love and he's helping us understand it through human illustration. So he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Boy, there's so much to unpack. How did Jesus love the church? But then he goes down in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body or hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So if you're one who loves to write in your Bible, and I am, I love to do that, I want you to circle the word but. Because but in English translation is a transitional contrasting word. In other words, it, it's taking two things uh, that are different but focusing them together. So it takes two differing perspectives but joins them together. 
And so right here, Paul says, for no one ever hated his own body. So here's the contrast between hate. No one ever hated his own body, but, and then the word but then introduces the definition of love. It's the contrast of hate. He says, but nourishes and cherishes it. There it is. How do we love? We nourish and cherish ourselves. If I'm going to love myself and not hate myself, I'm going to nourish and cherish myself. Well, these are words that aren't necessarily incredibly popular uh, in English language, but they are there. And so in, in the Greek and really English, it's the nourish simply means to provide or to care for. If you're going to nourish something, you're going to provide and you're going to care for it. Think of a houseplant. Now, I'm the only one probably in the room that killed a silk fern years ago. Uh, I'm not really great with plants or something, but if you think of what does that need? Well, it needs proper nutrition. It needs uh, proper sunlight. You need to make sure the soil is, is taken care of. It, it needs sunlight. It needs all these things, and you're going to nourish it by doing what? By providing or caring for it. That's what we do for ourselves because we love ourselves. We're going to care for ourselves. Anybody ready to go to lunch? Because you want to go care for yourself. You want to provide nutrition. Well, the second word, to cherish, literally means to protect from foreign element that would harm. A lot of times we think of cherishing something, oh, look, I'm going to hold on to this and how beautiful it is. Well, no, to cherish is literally to protect something. I'm going to cherish it from foreign element. You get a picture of this with a mother bird covering her babies in the nest. The idea of cherishing is to, to protect them. So literally, we could say to love myself is to protect and provide for myself. To love my mate, my spouse, is to protect and to provide. To love my children is to protect and provide. The way God loves me, he protects and provides for me. Now, one of the greatest illustrations for me of this that I think of often is a swimmer. Uh, if you've ever been to a swim meet or, or a track and field event and you have runners, uh, there's these lanes that are theirs to run in or to swim in. Any swimmers? Okay, so you, you line up at the end of the pool and you have this lane. Now, why is the lane there? Wouldn't it make more sense to just let people jump in and swim wherever they want to swim? Of course not. So the, the officials give these lanes and they line up in that lane and that lane is provided for this young man as a swimmer to give him the greatest opportunity to win. In other words, unhindered, unimpaired, we're going to give you the greatest opportunity to swim from here to there, and maybe back, and maybe back again, and maybe back again. I don't know how many meters, but whatever the race is, that's your lane, and that's giving you the greatest opportunity to win. And if anyone crosses into your lane, what happens to them? They're disqualified. Why? Because we have a word that in introduces the idea of sin, and that is to, to transgress, transgress or to defraud. If they cross over into your lane, that is to transgress, which the Bible refers to as sin. So anything that takes us out of our lane is a transgression against God. Anyone who breaks into our lane, why? Because God says, I want to protect you and I want to provide for you. This is God's motive to love his creation. From the very beginning, this is the purpose of God's moral law and his boundaries that he puts into place. Matter of fact, years ago as I was studying God's word, I, I was reading in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. 
And God is speaking to Moses and God is telling the people of Israel what God is telling him to say. And this is what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 10, this, this sort of changed my perspective on my walk and relationship with God. He says, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, get this, for your good. New International Version says, for your own good. You know what that reminded me of? My father. <laughs> Anybody get that? Hey, I'm doing this for your own good. Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I don't think so. But I really started to understand this a little bit later. But this, this revolutionized God, where I'm thinking, God is not this big judge who sits up in heaven waiting for me to step out of line with a Louisville slugger like he's playing the whack-a-ball game and he's just ready to club me on the head. What I understand it is God gave me all these, these rules, these boundaries to protect me and to provide for me because it was an expression of his love. So here's what I want you to, to jot down. True love is ultimately defined in the person, nature, and character of God. True love is ultimately defined in the person, nature, and character of God. See, God doesn't simply display love. He is love. And we could get into a whole theological breakdown of God's intrinsic qualities and his extrinsic qualities, right? Intrinsic qualities is who he is in his nature and character. Extrinsic qualities are how he displays and relates to his creation. But love is an intrinsic quality. It's who he is in all of moral law and all of his protection and all of provision come from the person of God. His person, his nature, his character. And so it's easy to think of God as, as, oh, well, God is loving. And he expresses that through kindness and mercy and compassion and patience. But you know what? Out of God's love and his obligation to his nature and character to protect us, God is also a God of justice who has to punish wrong because it's part of his character. Wrath is part of God's character. And so, as a demonstration of his protection and provision, he is obligated to be true to himself, to protect us and provide for us. It's in that process that God creates this loving environment, just like that lane of a swimmer, that we can have the greatest opportunity to succeed in life, in a love relationship with the God that created us and loves us. So this is also true of a nation. It's, it's why a nation has laws and courts. It's an expression of love to its people that says, hey, we're going to protect and we're going to provide. We're going to give you the greatest opportunity to succeed. And we're going to protect and we're going to care for you. This was God's purpose in establishing government. As you read through the Old Testament, that's a whole other series. But that was God's purpose. That's his motivation. Now listen, I never understood this more than when I became a dad. My relationship with my father, I understood his discipline, and I, I truly understood his love and his care for me, but it took on a whole different meaning in 1990 when I became a daughter to a beautiful little sinner girl. <laughs> and as she grew, and as my boys came along, and they grew, and I thought, how do I love and protect and care for these precious little children that God's entrusted to me? Well, I learned to care. 
Uh, I learned to create boundaries. I learned to discipline them all as an expression of my love to them because I wanted to give them the greatest opportunity to, to grow in a healthy environment, to love God, to love me, to learn to care for other people. Secondly, I want you to see that true love is reflected properly in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, if God's nature and character ultimately define love, then true love is lived out through us and it's properly reflected through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this kind of love is not simply manufactured. It's not something you do. Uh, anybody for a moment can be kind, they can be compassionate, they can be merciful, they can do good things, kind of be good-natured, insightful, but, but biblical love, the context in which Paul is writing is that true Christian love is powered by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's jump back into 1 Corinthians for just a moment. Because the context, context is everything in Scripture, uh, and the context in which Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians is that as he's writing his letter, earlier in his letter, he helped them understand, you guys are not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 2, looking in verse 14, Paul is writing and he says, the natural person. Now, this is the person that has never come to know Christ. And if you have someone that's never come to know Christ, don't impose God's grace where God's grace has not been received and have greater expectations of them. Paul is saying, look, there are some people who don't know Jesus. We can't place this sense of expectation on them. And so he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. And yet the spiritual person, spiritual person is simply the person who is living in surrender and control of the Holy Spirit of God judges all things, that is to discern all things. He continues on uh, chapter 3 verse 1, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but there's a contrast again, as people of the flesh. And listen to the language. The contrast between living in the spirit and living in the flesh. I could not address you as spiritual but uh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's saying, look, there's a contrast in the life of a believer between exhibiting um, the, the grace and the love of God in the flesh or in the spirit. We have a choice to walk in the spirit or in the flesh. Ephesians 5.18, let's jump back to the book of Ephesians because right before Paul defines love in, in chapter 5 verse 18, he writes these words. He says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Your translation may say or leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there, there's an emphasis on the fact that if we're going to properly reflect the love of God, we have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, that word filled literally means to be controlled and empowered. In other words, it's a choice that you and I make every moment of every day to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I make a choice in this moment to be filled, to be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I make that choice every morning. And then I fail, and then I make that choice again, and then I find myself failing, and then I make it again, and I fail. But every morning I wake up with a simple prayer, Lord Jesus, thank you that you've given me eternal life. I don't have to invite him in again, I already did that. But every moment of every day I have to choose to surrender, to say, God, I choose to live in, in uh, surrender for you to control me and empower me. 
But that word debauchery that he uses there is interesting because it literally means perversion. To take something and change it and pervert it. So the contrast that he's giving us is simply this, um, that when we are controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, or if we're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, we pervert God's truth. If we are not controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, we pervert the picture of his love and grace to other people. If I'm not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, I become a perversion of God's grace and truth. And so it is vitally important to realize that we have to reflect God's love properly through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just remind you of this, that when we say yes to the Holy Spirit, it is also by default a no. Okay? When we say yes to the Holy Spirit, control me, empower me, live through me, by default we are also saying no to what? To human impulse? To my flesh? To culture? To man-pleasing? See, when we say yes, it is by default, also, by default also a no to something else. This is the life of a believer who's walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. In every moment of every day, we have to continue to ask the questions, who's in control here? I mean, really, who's in control here? Who's making the decisions here? Who's the boss here, really? Is it me and my flesh, or am I choosing to live in surrender to the Holy Spirit, to be controlled and empowered? Third, I want you to see that true love is reflected improperly in the flesh. True love is reflected improperly in the flesh. If I'm not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, showing a proper perspective of God's love and grace, then I'm doing it improperly in the flesh. And when we stray from the very source of love, which is Christ and the Spirit, it is impossible to truly be loving. So let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 13 and just unpack this for a moment. Verse 4 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but there it is again. Rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Take some time this week. Just jump back to this passage and, and grab your Bible and just, just look at that passage. And, and what I want you to do is just, just mark the words and look at the contrast. Which of these words represent my flesh and which of these words represent the power of the Holy Spirit? And what you'll do is you're looking at it, you're going to go, wow, love is patient and kind. Those are positive in the Holy Spirit. Love rejoices with the truth. That's positive in the Holy Spirit. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those are positive attributes in the Spirit. On the other hand, in the flesh, what does he say? In the flesh, envy. In the flesh, boast. In the flesh, arrogant. In the flesh, rude. In the flesh, insist on my own way. In the flesh, I'm irritable. In the flesh, I'm resentful. You see the choice that we have as a believer? I can choose to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, or I can choose the flesh. And if I choose the flesh, I am an improper representation of God's love to other believers, as well as to a lost and dying world. So love is reflected improperly in the flesh if my motive is wrong. See, we hear it a lot, and especially in our culture. Well, if you love me, you will... Well, I love you if, or I love you because 
you're this, or I'll love you if you'll do this. Well, listen, what I've discovered is if my motive is not right, what, what I typically hear from people when they say that, and it's, it's very popular in our culture, right? If you love me, you'll do this. What I hear is, I love me, and I want you for my own pleasure and my own gain. I love me, and I want you for my own purpose. The Bible says that's not love. Why? Because love is patient. Love is kind. I'm seeking the best for someone else because my desire to love you is to protect you and to provide for you, not simply to seek my own fulfillment and my own gain. So if my motive is wrong because I'm operating in the flesh rather than the spirit, I'm not bringing glory to God. I'm not loving that other person. We become selfish. We become self-designing, self-willed, self-motivated. Everything about myself, and I do everything possible to promote my interests and my welfare simply to use other people for my gain. But see, love is also reflected improperly in the flesh if value is misplaced. If value is misplaced, because we understand our motive to love through the power of the Holy Spirit, we place greater value on the other person, because we look at that other person as a unique individual created in the image of God, loved by God, at the very beginning of the, of the of this series. What? But God demonstrated his own love for you and for me, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if my value is misplaced, I look at the person and I'm more concerned with their political stance or their political view or some other differing perspective and I fail to see the person as an individual created in the image of God who he loved and died for. If value is misplaced, I'm more concerned about the other peripheral things than the eternal significance of that individual. Just remember this, you've never looked in the eyes of someone that Jesus doesn't love and die for. If it doesn't change your human interaction with other people, I'm not sure what does. But when we misplace our value, and sometimes honestly, listen, our value is on earthly kingdoms and not heavenly kingdoms. We're so consumed with the things of this world. And, and value has been greatly misplaced by the church for a number of years. And there's so much division going on. Why? Because our value is misplaced. It's less about people. It's more about politics. It's more about masks. It's more about pandemic. It's less about people. We look in the eyes of people and we realize God places the greatest value in human life because he created them for his honor and for his glory. And those people need to know Jesus. And how are they going to discover the love and grace of Jesus? Through us. Lastly, love is reflected improperly in the flesh if truth is ignored, if truth is ignored, see, God is love, but God is also truth. It's one of his intrinsic qualities. The very nature and character of God is truth. And yet we live in a culture where there is no absolute truth. We live in a culture of subjective truth, which literally says it's okay to have your own truth and I'm going to have my own truth and we just have to get along. I can't do that because God is the standard of absolute moral truth that's based in his person, his nature, and his character. 
And I believe certain things about who God is, and I believe what the Word of God says. And so when I look at the culture, I go, wow, this is all wrong. Well, how do I step into a broken culture embracing God's truth with people who don't embrace God's truth and still convey love? Welcome to the difficult journey of ministry in the 21st century. There's not just two sexes anymore. I think there's like 17 now. And yet I look at the Word of God and I go, no, really, there's just two. So how do I love someone who disagrees with me? Well, listen, what I understand is simply this. God has saved me, and I can't impose God's grace where God's grace has not been received by someone else. And I have to place value in the individual and love them, properly reflecting God's love and grace. And changing their opinion about an ideology is not the answer. The Bible says someone has to come to a point of brokenness and surrender and confess their sin to God and receive Him as their Savior and Lord. That's salvation. Changing their opinion about a political party or a view or anything else in culture is not salvation. So I'm going to make that a secondary issue. And I'm going to focus on what? On truth. Now, here's here's the difficult part of this. Because to truly love someone is to desire God's best for them, right? Protect and provide. And they will never experience that outside of God's truth. No matter what kind of subjective truth they create on their own, they're never going to experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ apart from Him. Life will be empty. It'll be meaningless. Destruction, addiction, hurt, guilt, remorse, pain are going to be a result of people seeking pleasure and fulfillment apart from a personal relationship with God. Why? Because they define their own truth. They attempt to live their own version of truth, to seek their own pleasures, to try to fill the void and the emptiness in their life that can only be filled with the person of Jesus Christ. And we do others no good when we refuse to stand and lovingly speak truth to them. John chapter 8, verse 32, he says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is what? The truth is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. People will never be set free seeking anything apart from Jesus Christ. They're finding temporary fixes that only bring greater and greater hurt. Paul in Ephesians He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ. But here's the difficulty, and we'll wrap it up. We live in a culture war. We are deep in a culture war right now. And this culture war will not be won by followers of Jesus Christ beating people up who don't know Jesus with our words and our ideas. They will be one because of God's truth conveyed in loving relationships. I would simply put it this way. When truth, biblical truth, is not lived out in loving relationships, that truth, although it is still true, it loses its relevance and it begins to cast doubt on the credibility You see, when people outside the church or even inside the church look at us and go, oh, so you call yourself a Christian. But the truth is not lived out in loving relationship or it's reflected improperly in the flesh. What is the world doing? It's looking at us going, if it doesn't even work for you, why do you think it worked for me? Why are you telling me I need something that doesn't even work for you? 
we've said it for years, right? Church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, it is. Because we're all sinners before a holy God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Falling in love with Jesus Christ is, is not living a perfect life, but it is growing in, in a mature relationship with Christ, learning more and more to be like Christ. To love those outside the church, to love those inside the church. Why? Because we're conveying God's love and grace to them. Folks, this is a difficult journey. We're in it together to convey Jesus' love to one another and to a lost and dying world. So let's pray together as we close. Father, we're in a tough situation and we need you. Lord, I am so grateful for the love that you've demonstrated to us through Jesus. And if you're in this place or you're watching online and you've never come to know Christ, maybe you're dealing with some of the pain and some of the hurt of difficulty and bad decisions, I want you to know that God loves you and he cares for you. He died so that you can have a personal relationship with him so that you can be forgiven. And right now you can respond in the comments or you can text the number that's on the screen and we'd love to talk with you. Help you know what it means to know Jesus Christ personally. Maybe you're struggling and you're just dealing with some of that pain and you just need someone to come alongside and walk that journey and, and love you and point you to Jesus. We can't fix the problem, but we can walk with you. We'd love to do that. If you're in the room and you've never come to know Jesus, we'd love to help you understand what that means this morning before you leave. You can text the number on the screen in the room or just come and talk to one of us afterwards. We'd love to do that. We'd love to pray with you. So let's continue the conversation. Whether you're in the room or whether you're online, we're going to cut to a post show right after Barb comes. And we'd love to just continue to dialogue. And let's talk about this. How do we love Jesus and love one another? So Father, draw us close to you. Give us wisdom for the difficult days ahead. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.